0: Bible. This is the declaration by um, Nebuchadnezzar of what the Lord has finally done in his life. It's divided into four sections. I'd like you to follow along with me as I read to you this passage. Let's all stand as I read to you. At the end I will say this is the word of the Lord and I would encourage you to say thanks be to God. Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded uh, that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologists, and diviners came and I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and on it was food for all. Under it the beasts of the field found shelter and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked and there before me was a messenger from heaven, a watcher. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off the leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from the branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals amongst the plants of the earth. Let his mind let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by the messengers, the holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered my lord if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries the tree you saw which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit providing food for all giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places for the birds of the air you O king are that tree You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of the heavens. Let him live like wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O King, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You'll be driven away from your people and will eat with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sin by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and by the glory of my majesty? The words were still in his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he pleases. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of eagles and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored." Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Humble, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks, be seated, please. Let's turn to the Lord for a short word of prayer. Lord, we come to you and we pray that you would bring our hearts uh, to you this morning. May it be, Lord, that what I say would be what you would have me to say to the people who are here. And may it be that our hearts, the eyes of our hearts, are open to see and understand this great passage of Scripture today. Guide us, Father, we pray. May the words of my mouth, meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Now, when my kids were little, they loved visiting their great-grandparents' house. And in the great-grandparents' coat cupboard was a box of, uh, pardon me, a bucket of toys and beside the bucket of toys, there was this game called Jenga. Jenga is a Swahili word for build. Now, do you ever played Jenga, any of you? Yeah, a couple, a few? Well, Jenga is just a pile of identical blocks. But I learned yesterday, by the way, that they aren't quite identical. There's a little bit of a difference. They're about this big, each, okay, each of the blocks, and they're stacked About two and a half feet high. And what you do is this. The idea is that you are to slide carefully one tile, one block at a time, out of this pile of blocks and place it on top of the whole pile. And so you do this carefully, making the tower taller and taller. And the idea is for the tower not to fall over. Eventually you have this three and a half, not two and a half, but three and a half foot tall tower that looks like wooden Swiss cheese standing about this high. And the excitement grows because now the blocks, you're not sure which one you should take out because all of them seem flimsy. And so it's your turn. And you pull the block out and place it on top. Ha! Huh. Good. And then you'll watch your friend and they pull the block out. Ha! Huh. Good. Now the tension's mounting. That's exciting. For some people it's even more exciting when somebody blows it and the whole tower falls down. And you've got to start all over again. Crash! is almost as exciting as the tension of pulling out the blocks. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18 says, See how the mighty have fallen, 1 Samuel 1, 25 to 27 indicates. The analogy of the the proud person toppling from his tower of arrogant self-sufficiency, self-rule, and self-importance seems to fit with the exhilarating crash of all those Jenga blocks. Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel's prophecy, fits this category very well, at least temporarily. In the last few weeks, we have been taking a look at true family portraits in our Old and later New Testament brethren. If we look beyond the edges of their lives, you see things that are quite different than we originally thought. As Pastor West has noted, When people come to the Bible, they think they have a pretty clear picture of what the family of God looks like or who the family of God is. The family of God is put together. The family of God is holier than thou. The family of God is neat and tidy, unlike my poppy that just fell off my lapel. Those kind of phrases would come to mind. But we will look at the Bible This cannot possibly be the truth because we find out that things in the sacred text are radically different. As we saw in the last two weeks, Jacob, the man who wrestled with God and was called Israel, was one who was known to be a deceiver and a liar and a usurper. And he lived in a dysfunctional family where that was the norm, encouraged by mother in particular, but also by dad. David was a man after God's own heart. But he was a lustful man who committed adultery with Bathsheba and then tried to cover it up by utilizing Uriah, the husband, until he finally could cover it up no more and had Uriah killed and married Bathsheba quickly before the pregnancy was too noticeable. Today, we come to a man who I didn't realize before I began looking into his character, could even be considered part of the family. He's a Babylonian, a heathen. He's a destroyer of Judah. He's the leading worshiper of the leading God of Babylon. But he certainly is a part of the family. And his name is Nebuchadnezzar. Try saying that ten times. Nebuchadnezzar. It seems that Daniel 4 is the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar to his being humbled by the Lord the Most High God. This is the man with his armies that Jewish mothers and the prophets warned you about. He is the emperor of Babylon, the conqueror and ruler of the known world. He defeated the Egyptians who had wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. He beat, pardon the, uh, the Assyrians. He beat the Egyptians. He subdued the Assyrians. And finally, in 586 BC, he destroyed Solomon's temple, of Yahweh in Jerusalem and sacked the city as well. The Lord had used him as his hand to discipline the people of God by taking them into 70 years of exile in a foreign land. More than his military prowess, however, was his building genius. The city of Babylon was built by him to majestic splendor. The walls were wide enough to hold chariot races. He built for his wife a wonder of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon where lost vegetation casc- cascaded down walls that were five or six or seven stories high, watered by the Euphrates River. In an arid land, to impress his wife, he did these things. He had everything and was, for all intents and purposes, the biggest thing in the entire world. This is the man that we study today. And this is the man who God makes to deal with the most prevalent sin in any person. And that sin is pride. And he had lots to be proud of. This morning I want to look at that long passage I read to you. I don't think it'll take as long to look at as it took to read it, I promise. It might just seem that way. Uh, Daniel chapter 4. It is Daniel is the last of the major prophets, as you found, coming after Ezekiel and before the first minor prophet, Hosea. This is just an aside, but do you know why they're called major prophets and minor prophets? It's Because the major prophets have bigger books than the minor prophets. That's the only reason. So the major prophets have big books, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. The minor prophets, like Obadiah, Nahum, are small books. So if anybody asks you why they're called major and minor prophets, you can just tell them that. I want to point out four things this morning as we skim this passage and consider the life of Nebuchadnezzar. These are the long road to smashing pride. Secondly, the change from pride to humility. The third thing is recognition that God is totally, totally in control and then the call to personal humility. So the four things again are the long road to smashing pride, the change from pride to humility, the recognition that God is totally in control, and the call to personal humility. Now, as we come to this, I want to uh, admit to you that I've turned to several great biblical preachers to help with this message, including Tim Keller, John Piper, and D.A. Carson. All of these men have created great insights into this man's life. I pray that what I have to share with you as I use these individuals in my study will be helpful this morning. Let's look at verses 4 to 28, the long road to smashing pride. Now, I think that most of you who are here most likely have heard the story of Daniel and his friends as you were growing up. Maybe not all of you, but maybe most of you. And if you haven't heard it then, you heard it in the last few years. These were Jewish boys taken into captivity, but trained to be leaders in the empire of Babylon. These extraordinary men had great influence from the start of their captive lives. From Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, they had impact on him for good in every chapter that describes his rule in Daniel. As we look at the indications, we get of Nebuchadnezzar in the passages. You see a man who wants what he wants and he wants it now. Ever known anybody like that? He's archetypal in that way. I want what I want and I want it now. He wants the magi, the wise men, to interpret his forgotten dream in chapter 2. If they will not, he will tear them limb from limb and flatten their houses. Impatience rules his life. The setting up of the image in chapter 3 seems like an impulsive act of a man who thinks all his ideas are, of course, perfect. Ever know anybody like that? All of my suggestions are wise and perfect. That was Nebuchadnezzar. Flattery will get you everywhere with him. To attack his pride brings anger, and to thwart his plans brings fierce anger. At the base of all this, Tim Keller says, is a spiritual cancer. So bad that as drastic as the treatment we are about to see needs to be, it's important to get this cancer out of his soul. It's important for us to get this cancer out of our souls as well. This cancer, of course, is spiritual pride. No, there's a proper pride that says, I have the faith to believe that God has made me with gifts and talents that I can use for his glory and honor. And when they are used properly, I am thankful to him and I appreciate what has taken place. That is proper pride. This brings stability and joy, but there's a wrong sort of pride the pride that Keller says looks at life and all of the things done by me and for me and says, the reason I am doing well is because I did it. Therefore, I owe, I'm owed this. I deserve it. I'm owed good things to take place for me. If things go well, I'm getting what I'm owed. If things go poorly, I've suffered more than others. This should not be happening to me. That's not what I'm owed. I don't deserve this. If things are given to me, no, I should earn what I get. I won't take it if I haven't earned it. The bottom line for Keller is that pride is that which claims to be the author of what is really a gift. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? It's summed up in this sentence. I am the master of my faith. I am the captain of my soul. Somewhere in our hearts and in our lives there is this thinking that says I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those words from the poem Invictus. As we come to Daniel chapter 4, verse 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar lounging in effect in his palace. Ah, I can see him on a chaise lounge with a a nice iced tea, sitting out there drinking his iced tea. He was home, contented, and prosperous. All he could want was at his beck and call, and he was pretty happy about it. Yeah, he'd seen some challenging thing. Those four Hebrew boys were far better than anybody else. bit hard to take as compared to our boys. Yes, Belteshazzar could interpret the hidden dreams so that I could appreciate that his God is the God of gods, the revealer of secrets in chapter 2. Yes, the three Hebrew men withstood the worst I had to throw at them when they would not bow to the idol. And I saw that fourth man who'd come like unto a son of the gods in the fiery furnace they'd been thrown into. I have to admit that was pretty amazing, and they really showed faith. No other God could do that, and it was pretty incredible. You know what? I don't want to have to deal with that God, Yahweh, again. He's a bit too much for me. But all of a sudden... As Nebuchadnezzar is at ease, he has this terrifying dream, which is in verses 10 through 17. It's frightening. There's a tree in the middle of this place, and it's humongous. And it's beautiful, and it's lush, and it has every kind of fruit. And you have all the beasts of the field living underneath it and being shaded and protected, and you have the fruit feeding. All of the animals in the field and you have the birds living in the trees and it is just marvelous. And it can be seen from everywhere. Now that is geographically impossible but it is a dream after all. Okay, So just sort of go with us on that. It can be seen from everywhere. All of a sudden a watcher that's the category in Nebuchadnezzar's pagan mind Daniel later calls him an angel. Comes down from heaven and starts to make comments, orders, cut down that tree and strip off the branches. Get rid of all the leaves and scatter all the fruit. Get out the wood chipper and get rid of that tree. But leave the stump in the ground and wrap it in iron and bronze. Scatter the animals, shoo the birds away. Leave that stump, though, where it is. Let the grass grow around it. Let him, see the change from it to him? Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given a mind of an animal till seven times pass him. The vision goes on to state the decisions announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and over them the lowliest, and sets over them the lowliest of people. After all of the other opportunities that Nebuchadnezzar had to see the sovereign rule of Yahweh. The dream indicates he is going to be dealing with a doozy of revelation from God, and that intrigues and frightens him. D. A. Carson says this dream reflects Nebuchadnezzar's megalomania. He's corroded by his own greatness and is so insecure of his grandiose fantasies they must be nourished by incessant self-admiration. The man's arrogance towards God is unrestrained, and God resolves to humble him. From the amazing abilities of the Hebrew men through the interpretation of the first hidden dream, to the deliverance of men from the fiery furnace, that should have been enough to change Nebuchadnezzar's heart towards God. But it wasn't changed yet. All this long process brings him to the point of being called to his greatest trial, the smashing of his overweening pride. Pride. The idea that I am old what I receive and I do not deserve what is bad. Pride is that which claims to be the author of what is really a gift from someone else. You want to steal from the author his due. That author is God. We don't want to admit that all that we have, every single thing that we have is a gift and that what we deserve is only the immediate punishment of our sins by immediate direction to hell. A real place. For if you had to admit that everything is from God. The author of everything. Then you admit that you are not in control of anything. All of us. To a greater or lesser extent. Find that phrase bitter in our mouths. You are not in control. You don't want that. I want to be in control of something. Even if it's the dad controlling the TV remote. I want to be in control of something. As Keller says, we think, yes, all of us, I want to keep control. By blindly thinking you can keep control, you say, I decide what is best for me. I decide what is practical for me. I am owed at least that. Really? Is that really true? Yes, I'm self made. Really? Did you choose your skin color or your gender? or the century you were born in, or how your mind works, having an IQ higher or lower on the IQ scale. Your physical attributes, whether you put on weight just by looking at food, or you can eat the whole truck's worth of food and not have any pounds gained. Connections, who your friends are, your family or your experiences. In a place like Vancouver, which moves so fast and which is so dog-eat-dog, the idea of not being just a little bit in control is not comfortable. Skyrocketing housing prices, competition for few jobs, increases almost daily in the competencies needed for your area of expertise, add to that the demands of home and family and debts and even the demands of this congregation and you beg for something where you can say, I run that. It is the least that can be done. And when you have that feeling in your heart in anything, that's pride. Pride? No, I don't have pride. Here's what John Piper says. Now, don't make the mistake of saying to yourself, now, well, pride is surely not my problem. I'm a loser. I don't know many losers, by the way. I'm a loser. I don't feel self-sufficient at all, and I don't expect anybody to exalt me because I'm so ugly or unintelligent or weak. So pride... That's not my problem. Be careful here and now. Don't let Satan trick you. I did not say that pride was the achievement of self-sufficiency or the achievement of self-exaltation. I said that pride is the enjoyment of them, the delight in them, the desire for them. You may see your life as a total failure and feel crushed by this this morning, and still have pride as the driving force in your life. The very pain you feel at being a failure may be owing to the desperateness of your desire to look successful and to taste the glory of human praise. Oh, I want someone to appreciate me. One person may go to a party and brag and boast and draw attention to himself. Yeah, by the way. And his achievements, another person goes to the same party and could be so fearful and insecure that he hides in corners and tries to avoid people. But both these persons may be driven by unbelief and pride. The strong person doesn't believe the grace of God is needed. The weak person doesn't believe the grace of God is sufficient. And since God is not their portion, and man is, the long for esteem and the praise of men are what they want One person fearful that he won't get it hides. Another person hopeful that he will get it brags. Same disease, different symptoms. All of us, to a greater or lesser extent, have it. I have it. Look at verse number 7, by the way. And Nebuchadnezzar had it, and he kind of was starting to understand where the answer came from. And he didn't want to get it. Verse number 7, when the astrologers and enchanters and magicians and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence. He called the wise men, and only when they couldn't help him does he call in Daniel. In him is the spirit of the holy gods. It is as though he didn't want to deal with the Hebrew God again until he had to. He'd seen enough of his work and he hoped that he could bypass him. No can do. Daniel comes and puts Nebuchadnezzar face to face again with the servants of the most high God. Uh oh, for the king Uh uh-oh, what are we going to do? Second point, and these points aren't all as long as the next one, I promise you. Second point is the change from pride to humility, verses 19 to 33. When Daniel heard the dream in verse 19, he paled. He was terrified to speak anymore because he knew what the dream was talking about the king. He was the tree. He was to be cast down. He was specifically to face the mental illness of lycanthropy. Believing and acting as though he was an animal for seven seasons. I don't know how long seven seasons is. All that has been seen was to be applied to him to get Nebuchadnezzar once and for all finally to submit to Yahweh. What a horrendous trial. The God who loves us so very much is willing to go a long, long way to have us give up our pride and to humbly follow him. Again and again in Scripture it says God opposes, resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 3, verse 34, James 4, verse 6, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. So, as Peter says, why not humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he will lift you up? Daniel wants to call upon the king to do something to forestall this prophecy as he is a faithful servant of the foreign king. Look at verse 27, if you would. Verse 27. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Maybe you'll be able to avoid this if you change your ways and your mindset. Now, show that you desire to do what is right. Express your change by caring for those who are lower than you. This is the call that comes to all of us. If you are proud, and we all are, do not. Do not wait for the mighty hand of God to oppose you. See your way clear as the Spirit of God works in your heart to humble yourself. Do what is right. Be submissive to God. The trials and difficulties that come in the lives of believers often come for the purpose of moving us from pride to humility. Some of you need to think about the fact, why do I face the things that I face? It could be, and I want to be careful here, it could be to move you from being proud and think that you're owed stuff to being humble and appreciating the gifts come from God. That could be what's going on. That could be to move from life's things being owed to us for we are somehow good enough to every breath we get being a gift from the hand of Almighty God. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar listened for a while and attempted to change. Who knows? However, after a year, everything fell apart. Again, Nebuchadnezzar is relaxing. He's got this thing about relaxing at home and being content and satisfied. Walking around the roof of his palace and he foolishly says, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? That's in verse 30. As soon as the words come out of his mouth, a voice says, This is what has been declared for you, Nebuchadnezzar. And all of the prophecy that Daniel was so reticent to share came true. In verse 33, Nebuchadnezzar is in the throes of this serious mental illness that makes him think he's a cow, basically. He's a cow. For seven seasons he exists in this fashion. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. It's as though the impact of pride is seen in the life of the king directly. One commentator says that pride turns you into an animal. You're unable to empathize. This is uh, Tim Keller. You're like a cat. I don't know if you know, but cats and dogs are different. Pardon me? (laughs) I'm a dog lover, by the way. Um, uh, dogs, every day is the best day ever, all the time. This is the best thing ever, oh yes, for the cat. Day 907 of captivity. (laughs) I wonder what the human is going to do today to meet my needs. If he doesn't meet my needs, I'm going to have to scratch his hand because that's very important. Now, as you can see, you can probably tell from my personality why I like a dog and wonder a bit about cats. My mother and my brother love cats. Maybe that's why I live in British Columbia, and they're in Ontario. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway. You focus on yourself and not others. You're driven by survival instincts. Pride makes you want to keep away from anything better or stronger or higher than yourself. I have this problem. I love quizzes, but I hate failing at quizzes. My favorite game used to be Trivial Pursuit. I used to... How many folks remember that game? Uh, I used to like the original, the one that had 1980s music or... Star Wars, I did not know. But the, the other one, I, I could do that one. But if I was ever beaten by anyone in that game, I wouldn't play them again. My pride could not survive. That should be an embarrassing thing to say. But that's how I felt and maybe how I feel some days. Anything that makes me feel small or shows I do not have the right to be at the center of the universe, pride makes you feel threatened. Pride makes me unhappy if I feel less attractive or intelligent or sharp. Pride makes me only feel happy in good circumstances. Otherwise, we hate it. We run if we are proud from things and people that make us uncomfortable or threaten us. If you ever irrationally feel threatened by someone, here is why. To feel irrationally threatened most often means you are a proud person. That is why Nebuchadnezzar had to have, defeated, have that defeated in him. That is why we have to have it defeated in us. This is why he had to make, be made to act like an animal for seven seasons or times. Here is what the Lord calls for. Here is what the Lord will give grace for. Hear Tim Keller again. You have to see that you do not deserve anything from God but judgment. You have to see that you are the object of the greatest mercy from God. Humility is that which claims that everything, all, is a gift. It receives life as a gift. What you are given you do not deserve. I don't deserve what I receive For if God gave me what I deserved, I'd be lost. I could not merit the good things I have. I have the difficult things I have. And This is important to hear. I have the difficult things that I have as a gift from God too. All is mercy poured out on me. The author owns me, and all I get from him is grace all the time. That's humility. All I get from grace, from God, is grace all the time. This is the kind of thing, the kind of thinking that only can be appreciated if we face something that changes our mind, changes it from I am owed it to it's all a gift. Only God can make that kind of change. Only God can reach into your heart and change your heart so that you no longer think that life is owed to you. But instead, the gracious Heavenly Father is giving you the best from His gracious good hand. Third thing, and I promise this is shorter, recognition that God is totally in control, verses 3 and 34 to 37. Now all of the hard things that were prophesied have occurred after seven seasons the king raises his eyes to heaven. He recognized where his difficulties came from and he looks up to heaven and sees what's going on. He recognizes who's in charge and to whom honor is due. Also the only place where deliverance from his awful predicament would come from the God of heaven, Yahweh. This recognition was what the Lord sought from the mightiest emperor the world had seen to that time. Amazingly like Job... When he recognized who God was and who he was, that he wasn't owed anything, hadn't done it all for himself, then all of the things that he once had were given back to him. His kingdom was restored to him. His advisors sought him again. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're running a kingdom, you don't want to go seek a crazy person for advice in order to run the kingdom properly. So when he became less crazy, when he came out of his... Uh, lithanthropy, lycanthropy, I guess it would be called. Then he was okay again to be talked to, to get advice from, to run the kingdom. Look what the king says in verses 34 and 35. These are some of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to To generation, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Sovereignty, rule, authorship, unquestioned creative authority, all these are seen in the high God of heaven. I am owed, therefore, nothing. I am owed nothing. And every single thing I receive is from his hand. He has changed who I am and returned my blessing to me, and I am thankful. Or maybe he's just seeing the blessings in a new light. D.A. Carson says the king articulates the message like this God is sovereign. He raises and abases who he will. None can withstand him, and every virtue or strength he possesses comes from him. To think otherwise is to invite rebuke for those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So, the import of the whole proclamation of this whole passage is to say, God, I give up. You win. You are the greatest. I submit you. That should be words on our lips every day. God, I give up. You win. You are the greatest. I submit to you. Now, there's a call to personal humility. And as you've been listening this morning, if you have any involvement with reading the Bible, you would recognize that these themes are seen so often in the New Testament, and seen of the great One, who is the supreme example of humility. Yens and the worship team read Philippians chapter two verses three to 11 for us this morning. Here it is again. This is the challenge that comes from Paul regarding Jesus to us. Do not consider pardon me. But rather he became nothing by taking on the very form of a servant. And being found in human likeness, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge, or better, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the ultimate humbling. Unlike any of us, he is the author of and the creator of and the ruler of everything. He was and is and always shall be equal with God, for he is God. Without any need to humble himself and submit himself, for us, Jesus made himself nothing. He became a servant. He took on the fashion of a man. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, from a height far higher than that of the king of Babylon, when he descended to a depth far lower than temporary insanity hid to crucifixion was his journey. If you have qualms about dealing with your pride, if you don't want to deal with your pride, see the example of the one who saved you by his grace. He who had every reason to be proud humbled himself. He did that great condescension to save us and to glorify his great name. What holds us back from doing the same thing? To recognize that he really is in control. He really is. You are not in control, but you want to be. Can you leave off that illusion and submit to him and recognize what is the truth and to those who are around you have them see that you understand that everything is a gift from him? The result of his humbling to the lowest place was to be exalted by God to the highest place. The God who saved sinners showed his wondrous love by taking that man who went so far down and holding him up high as the one who would save his people from their sin. The result of leaving off your pride is the appreciation of the good things of God and the receipt of God's friendship. And there being no more opposition. My friends, in Nebuchadnezzar we have seen the life of a man today who we would not have expected to be part of the family. The family of believers. A heathen emperor finally gives up his pride and humbles himself before the Most High God. His recognition of his sin and his giving Yahweh his rightful place has caused many to see Nebuchadnezzar as part of the family of God a part of a very interesting, not clear and tidy family by any means. We, today, have a far better answer than he would know about. For we have the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who humbles himself for us. Nebuchadnezzar had his pride smashed, as we have noticed. He had his pride turned forcefully to humility. He submitted himself publicly and vocally to the God who is sovereign we are called to the exact same thing every vestige of pride is to be given to jesus who knows humility and he knows it for